Hello and welcome to Touch by Crime. We are your hosts. I'm Ellen. I'm Kathy. I'm Jude. I'm Tyler. We are four people who have come together to bring you stories of people whose lives have been touched by crime. We're not journalists and we don't have any legal education. We don't do any investigation, but simply lend our ears to people who have a story to tell or perspective to give. We're here to listen and learn, and we hope you are too. As we talk to people, you'll hear us give as we talk to people, you'll hear us give our opinion and reaction as lay people and human beings. We are touched by the stories people tell us, and we think that it is an important way to learn. Listening to other people's trauma can be triggering and upsetting. That doesn't mean one shouldn't listen, because having your voice silenced can be further traumatizing. We're here to support people who have the courage to tell their stories and to further a conversation about criminal justice reform and the impacts it has on people. When we talked about making this podcast, we plan to bring you stories of people whose lives have been touched by crime. A different story every week. When we did our first interview with Desmond Rouse, it became apparent that this could never be a one-episode story. In fact, we believe the case needs its own podcast. And I don't know that we could do it justice here, but we're going to try. You will hear from Desmond, one of the supposed victims. You will also hear from Desmond's wife, Anna, who is a wealth of knowledge in this case. As well as Bill Decker, the only parent of the children that is still alive today, and Mike Ware of the Innocence Project of Texas, who took on the case for Desmond because no one else would. All of this happened in South Dakota on the Yankton Sioux Indian Reservation, which is why the FBI and the Bureau of Indian Affairs were involved. South Dakota didn't have an innocence project at the time, and no one would help the Yankton Corps until Mike Ware decided to. Imagine being accused and then convicted of a crime you know you didn't commit. Now imagine that it was a crime that never even happened. That's exactly what happened in this case. Four Yankton Sioux men were convicted of a crime that never happened. Yes, you heard me right. The crime never happened. In January of 1994, police descended on the home of Rosemary Rouse, the mother of two of the accused, Desmond and Jesse, and removed 13 young children, most of whom were just visiting Grandma's house. I'm going to add a trigger warning here, but remember that I said the crime never happened. The four men were accused of sexually abusing five young nieces, aged 20 months to seven years. The children were taken from the reservation and placed in white foster homes and were coerced into saying their uncles abused them. All five recanted soon after the trial, but it was too late. There was evidence that the judge would not let the jury hear and their defense attorneys made many, many mistakes. This is the first episode of a series of how these people's lives were touched by crime. Today we will be talking to Desmond's wife, Anna, who will try to give an overview of this very complex case. In a later episode, Anna will tell us how she met Desmond and got involved. And first of all, my name is Anna Gret or Anna James. Um, I am um, the advocate for the Yankton Four. I mean, it's Terum Yankton Four or Freedom for Yankton Four. Those are old terms that we coiled, you know, many, many years ago. We came up with, you know, catchy terms. 
how we could probably be found easier in a search engine, you know, things like that. So all these terms, if you search for the names of the men or names of, you know, basically what we came up with, we, we try to form our own uh, innocence project for Native Americans as well, called TP Project uh, uh, Innocence. You know, these are all obviously our, our terms, you know, so, you know, that's all originated somewhere in the past, you know, since, I don't know, 2008 point of first contact between one of the um, alleged abusers, um, Desmond Rouse and, and myself. Um, okay, the story itself, the case itself, I always said for the general public, it's kind of a mix between prison break and dances with wolves, because we damn, we actually dealing with um, Native Americans, uh, four Native American men from the Yankton Sioux Reservation, Marty in South Dakota, uh, United States. And uh, these men, when this happened to them, they all had a full life. You know, they weren't even living on the reservation. You know, they were working um, different parts of the country. You know, they had jobs. So um, they weren't like um, the usual stereotype, you know, drunken, useless individuals, you know, that nothing else to do than to hang around the house. They were even there just for uh, visits, you know, and got caught up in this, um, which I always refer to it as a witch hunt because I think that's what it is. Um, once their names were on the table, uh, there was basically nothing that anybody could do um, to get them out of this, you know. They were the chosen ones and that's it. And the machinery was put in place and um, they ended up in, uh, in prison. Um, so um, what it is, we just have a situation where we have one grandmother, we have, uh, 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 you know, Desmond there as one of the defendants, then his brother, Jesse Rouse, Garfield uh, Fever, who is a cousin, and uh, Russell Hubbling, who is another cousin. And we have like this idyllic scenario where there's lots of sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, um, you know, family, friends, children, everybody living together in two free um, adjoined houses on the Yankton Sioux Reservation. And then one day, you know, out of the blue, um, we have a BIA a cop car, this is uh, the Indian police uh, turn up, the FBI uh, turn up, uh, the state police with Sheriff Westendorf uh, turn up at the house um, of Rosemary Rouse. Um, this is the mother of Desmond Rouse. And basically uh, take all the children that were present at the time out of the property and just move them to an unknown place. So this is basically like an abduction. You have to imagine somebody is just knocking on your door and okay. taking out all your children. Doesn't tell you why or where are they taking them. Um, you're not allowed to ask any question. And this whole thing happened at gunpoint. And this happened in 1994. And yes, uh, my husband just pointed out that obviously the children didn't, uh, they weren't happy to be taken. You know, they were screaming, they were crying. We're looking at all kinds of age ranges here. You know, we're looking at um, 15 year olds and we're, we're also looking at, um, you know, the youngest Fury Rouse at the time. Um, she was, uh, I think a year and a half old. 
So these are the kind of age range we're looking at. So we'll see little, little ones, like one of them, Donovan Rouse, he wasn't that little, he was like seven, but he was hiding under the bed. And they were pulled from under the bed. Um, and uh, this basically, well, depending on uh, your racial background, you might say to yourself, now, how is that even possible for anything to happen? Or how could the parents not fight against this? Or how did they not say no? Or did they not have any comeback? Or, well, no, they don't. Because if you're a Native American person and you live on a reservation, you don't have such rights. And you also, uh, you know, you have two or three generations of genocide before you in your blood. And you're the boarding, boarding school uh, generation or descendants. And for you, this is just a normal occurrence. In 1994, that was a totally normal occurrence. Somebody knocks on your door, it still happens to this day, by the way, takes your child away and you have no comeuppance from it. So basically these children were taken away and we have three mothers affected and they're all uh, sisters of the defendants. So we have uh, Rika Rouse had a child taken we had Ursula Rouse, who had her daughter taken. And then we had Vita Rouse, who had three daughters and one son taken in this raid. Uh, two sons, sorry, taken in this raid. So I'm sorry, because there is a, such a conglomeration you know, of different uh, children being taken. And you, know, you see me, even after so many years being involved with this case, you, know, you still can get confused just as confused as uh, the actual court was as well during the, during the, uh, during the actual trial um, as to what the names of the children actually are, you know, who they are, who the mothers are, you know, it's a complete, uh, you know, confusion, you know, even at the sentencing stage, uh, the court uh, wasn't sure who is who. And even now, you know, when we go to the latest hearing, you know, there was uh, the latest evidentiary hearing that we had like, um, years ago now i think they're still confusing uh confusion about who is who and and all the rest of it because at the end of the day none of that mattered to anybody what mattered was just to get a conviction um there is political reasons behind this why this had to happen you know um so they ju just it is just basically a case is produced you know they needed a witch in this case they had four witches they could blame it on mm -hmm. and Five. Yeah, one got off your brother, Dwayne. Um, and and they, they did it. So then we have a situation basically where you have a house, you have the moms, obviously the grandmothers, they're definitely uh, desperately looking for their children. They don't know uh, where their children are. And um, yeah, then the search begins. You know, this is where Bill Decker comes in. He's a white family friend from Illinois. You know, they managed to call him. Um, somehow, I have no idea how they did it because there was no phone system installed on the Yankton Sioux Reservation before the year 2000. And that's also a very important point, you know, so because mother, grandmothers and mothers of, you know, once the men were actually arrested, everybody tried to communicate with each other and communication was a really, really big issue because nobody had a phone. Whereas obviously the FBI, you know, they did have their walkie talkies, they had phones, you know, they had cars. It's a reservation, people are poor. They don't have phones, they don't have cars, they don't have gas money, you know. That's out of this whole case, you know, 
how can I put it as well? There is always this misconception that people who are poor are not good parents, you know? And it's still like that nowadays in the United States and children are still removed out of Native American families on the regular because their families are poor. But that's all they are. They're not poor in love, you know? They're just poor in, in, in a monetary ways. And maybe, yes, obviously there is a different culture. There is a different way of upbringing, but who is to judge what is right, what is wrong? Why has it always got to be the dominant culture? So this is always also, of course, you know, what happened here, you know? They took these kids out because they could. Um, then there is the issue with education. Um, if you're well-educated, you're able to stand up to somebody, you know, you know how to defend yourself, you know, how to argument, you know, that that wasn't uh, really a possibility uh, for this family too, you know, they were just shocked by, by what happened and they're so used to authority and, and uh, uh, I don't want to use a um, example of the Pavlov, Pavlov dogs, I don't know if that's yeah. familiar to you so it's pretty much like just sitting there and waiting um what's going to happen are we going to get our children back or not and um for the children this is obviously traumatic i don't want to just make it about the man uh you know if this was my daughters this is why i was always very close to my heart because i have two daughters myself and i know what would they would have felt or what they would have gone through would they have been taken from me from such a young age put into a, a strange environment with very hostile people uh, into into an interviewing regime uh, by two individuals one an fbi agent uh about six foot four and, and another guy called dan hatsbeth dressed in black gear like the deaf himself size seven foot you know uh, well known as a beta on the reservation, you know, and, and then you sit in there as a small child and you're interviewed by these individuals, you know, this is what happened in the in initial stages. Then you're put into a foster home uh, where you are uh, given, given no rights, you know, given minimal food, you know, the first foster home was a gentleman, was with a gentleman um, by the name of Ardenbrock, who actually, um, as the kids recollect, you know, wanted to his feet rubbed, his back rubbed, his hair combed. I don't want to use the word, you know, of what I think of who or what this gentleman actually is. I think this is actually when the abuse started. They were taken. These are these are happy children taken out of a happy, healthy environment and thrown into an abusive environment. So it's actually the exact opposite. They've not been saved, you know, but they've been taken to be abused, you know, deliberately, knowingly, you know, by the state, by the authorities, by the government. Then they've thrown onto a farm, uh, uh, a different foster family. I mean, they were moved to a different foster family into a farm environment where they actually have to work on this farm. Um, they weren't given any food. I know Jessica always recollects that she was so hungry, you know, that she used to go to the dogs and, and, and eat the dog food, you know, try to get to the dog food. I mean, she was four years wow. old at the time. Um, they had a lock on the fridge, which is a common occurrence too, you know. They were just starved and worked hard and um, 
because they were starved, of course, it was possible for um, social workers or foster carers to say to them, if you say yes and no to everything that we want you to say, you're going to get a McDonald's, you know. We, we go camping, you're going to get a good life. You go back to the reservation. You know, they even told them if you say yes or no to these questions that we ask you about the uncles, you're going to see your uncles again. They, the kids at no stage were they aware of what they, they were they were doing or saying was affecting their uncles. They knew they were not telling the truth or lying. At that stage, they were totally confused anyway. But at every point of it, they always thought they were going back to the reservation and to see their uncles. The family would be reunited, everything would be happy, you know, like it was before. But the big shock was to come back and to find uh, the adults destroyed by what happened at court, you know, four innocent men, their relatives, you know, just thrown into prison for decades. And at the same time, they weren't there. And at the same time, there was this growing awareness then that in the children, this doom and gloom that they, um, in their little heads, you know, realized that they had something to do with it, you know. And here we are, uh, the year 2022, but this all happened in 1994. And we are still fighting for justice and for awareness. And it's uh, still an ongoing story. And I think it's one that deserves to be told and um, people to learn about it and, and find out about it. And then hopefully that'll never happen uh, to any other family again. And of course, uh, we don't know if it is even possible legally to have the case reopened again. But like I say, the men obviously want their justice, but, but also the children deserve justice. You know, they're to be a, a civil lawsuit against, you know, what happened to them, because we're not talking about they were just starved or when they were cried, their head were put into a soup bowl, you know, this is how well they were cared for. Wow. You know, we're talking wow. about the kids were given alcohol baths by the foster parent, actually put them in rubbing alcohol, you know, um, to, to, because they thought they were infested with lies. And of course, also to mimic the signs of abuse, you know, because obviously their genitals would be uh, reddened and swollen, you know, from the alcohol. They were all screaming. When you ask the kids about this nowadays, they still cry. They go back into trauma mode. I mean, the, the young women, sorry, I should mm -hmm. say. They're not even young women or middle-aged um, women now. It's 26 years ago. Um, and then on top of that, they've also um, had to endure a colposcopy examination, you know, uh, this is an examination that is done to grown women, uh, you know, for cancer, you know, uh, looking for cancer of the mother mouth. It's not recommended for small children at all. And nonetheless, you know, it was performed on them under anesthesia. I should also say that usually parents have to give consent to this examination and it is not done under, under anesthesia at, at uh, no way whatsoever. However, with these children, it was just done, you know, nobody cares. Uh, they were also injured in the process, you know, they told about pain, bleeding, you know, to the social worker. Um, that was also ignored. So, um, at, yeah. at, at this point, all of this happened actually before trial. Yes. Right. That they were in foster care and they were yes. examined. This is all prior to, to trial. Yeah. You want to say something? Excuse me, it was like being groomed for they were being groomed for trial and prepared. Hello everybody. 
they were being like groomed, prepared for trial, you know. We're gonna we're gonna ask you yes or no questions. All you gotta do is say yes. I mean, was just our whole trial was based on that, you know, yes or no questions. No evidence, no physical evidence, just accusations that they made up and had them say yes to. The doctors were the ones that actually abused them, you know, and the FBI, the government, the judges, the lawyers, prosecutors, they all abused them. We were just uh, guinea pigs for a door that was just being opened into a crime that is so easy to set someone up on, you know, that you don't need no evidence. All you got to say is, yeah, he did it, you know. Our case is based off that. So every case now back to 94 up to 93 up to 22 right now, you know, is will have to be reopened. And it's a big, it's a big door, you know. They opened the door, you know, but they closed it too, you know. We want that door back open to prove our innocence, you know, and you know, that's all we ever wanted, you know, was our day in trial without being railroaded, you know. Uh, so to speak, like we was, you know, by a jury that was, you know, biased, you know, the court system using chicanery, you know, it was all, you know, everything was all just a big smokescreen to get us locked up or, you know, uh, like I said, a door being opened, you know, for a lot of false convictions. I feel, you know, I know we're falsely convicted. Yeah, and that's what you know, I'd like to say thank you. <clears throat> Hello. <laughs> yeah, I think what Desmond's trying to say or what he said is that if they go back to court, other cases will have case law. Their case will become case law and others can argue, hey, this is what happened in Roust. You know, we have the same issue in our case where we're we are also convicted on junk science. This is this junk science uh, thing, you know. South Dakota, obviously, we eight circuit. Unfortunately, they don't have such a junk science paragraph like the Innocence Project of Texas. Or, you know, fought hard to have that implemented in Texas. I know there is other states. You know, uh, we try to do this. I mean, this is obviously part of our campaign as well to uh, reach uh, to 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 increase the awareness of that, that it is possible to be uh, convicted based on junk science. That there is no comeback from it currently in the Eighth Circuit uh, in South Dakota. And to basically get that implemented into a new habeas law for South Dakota, that's also something that we've been advocating for and contacting lawmakers about as well. And everybody's just like so scared, you know, like a deer in the headlights, you know. Uh, one second, yes. Oh, it's the Ninth Circuit? Oh, I thought it's the Eighth Circuit. Are you sure it's the Ninth Circuit? It's the Ninth Circuit, not Minnesota. Yeah, so um, my apology if I made a mistake here no, with no. with uh, which uh, circuit it is. I mean, I thought it was the, obviously in the United States, uh, different federal cases are heard in different circuits and for whoever doesn't know this, uh, different countries, uh, counties and states, you know, are divided into different circuits. So it's going to be either or, but it doesn't matter really for the for this discussion, you know. 
um, the judge in the case was uh, Judge Pearsall, um, who has since made a glorious career. He's also head of the Native American Advisory Commission for South Dakota, very involved with Native American issues, which in itself I will refrain from comment. You know what I think about that. Um, I think uh, Michael Ware, a director of the Innocence Project, I think he made his uh, views regarding this issue and uh, pretty clear um, himself too. I think uh, to be a just and courageous person, you know, also includes being able to go back on a wrong decision and being able to face that. And I think that is what makes good justice. And this is what I would expect a judge to do and what I would expect a justice system to do. And I do expect a justice system of the 21st century to recognize an error made in the 20th century and to remedy that, you know? And I think it's not too much to ask for that, you know? To these men that had their lives stolen from them, they went in as young men and they've now come in, uh, come out as, um, you know, not old men, but, you know, they had their 30s taken, they had their 40s taken. They can, 20s taken, yeah, they can never, never, never have them years them experiences, you know, they can never have them them back, you know. And as you know, I married to one of the defendants, and it's uh, it's not easy, you know. Um, you know the effects of the incarceration, and you know they're there, you know, every day. So it is uh, it is it is very difficult, you know, on a personal level, um, on a private level, but also. Of course, on a professional level, if you're dealing with these individuals and you're trying to, you're trying to help them, you know, so it's, it is hard, you know. So you can basically say we have four families who had a happy life. Then one day, uh, some people decided they needed a conviction or they needed to better their careers or they didn't like them for whatever reason or they were just biased. Um, and decided to destroy that and just moved in, took them kids out, made a case out of it. That's again, why I call it a witch hunt because that's exactly what it is. It's, it's nothing, you know, there was nothing, you know, and they made a huge something and, out of nothing. And how many years did they each get, the convicted men? Okay, uh, Desmond was given 33 years, Jesse 35 years, and Garfield, Kevin and Russell Hubbling each 30 years. And uh, yeah, these kind of sentences are not handed out uh, usually as well, you know, based based on what, you know. Um, I've seen this case is always very important. You know, we're dealing with complete innocent. We're dealing with people who haven't done anything. But um, through so many years and so through many prison visits, you know, you come across individuals that actually commit these awful crimes. Um, and they are given for, you know, some pretty horrendous things. They are given very, very uh, small sentences by comparison, like five to six years, you know, 10 years at the most, you know, nothing like 33 years or 35 years. And then when you actually look at what they are convicted of, you know, we're talking about, you're talking about things like uh, penetration with a finger, you know, 
I'm sorry to I'm sorry to to laugh because it's not a laughing matter for for people who are actually affected by by uh, crimes of this nature. Um, but you know, looking at the looking at the accusation and then what it actually resulted in, and and uh, you know what it was built up to be. You know, uh, you know, multiple group rape, uh, multiple kids tied up and in, in group raped and ritual uh, satanic abuse. You know, by these four men, and that that was the story headline in in, in for example in the newspapers, wasn't it? It was ritual sexual abuse. When I started actually researching this case in 2008. 11 kids tied up, uh, multiple rapes, you know, four men at the same time, all these kids, you know, you would think the kids are dead, you know, if you had to endure that. Then when you actually do look into the facts of what they were convicted in the end of, you know, you're looking at like penetration with a little finger, 33 years. And uh, they they took out 11 kids, yes. but not all of them was compliant with uh, going along with the FBI stories. No, right. of course the older children weren't because they, they could, they, they obviously were more coherent and they, they, uh, and they just said, no, this didn't happen, you know. And they, you know, and, uh, yeah, and, and the rest uh, who did testify by answering yes. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is another important thing because people think these kids told a lot of coherent stories. You know, you would assume they knew exactly, you know, they could describe it or they knew exactly what they were, that they, what they were talking about. So there were no doubt in the adult's mind that they had to protect these poor kids, you know. Um, that's totally not the case, you know. Uh, first of all, at trial, because the children were so happy to see their uncles. Uh, you know, I, excuse me, what I'd like to say on that is uh, that they used, you know, like I said before, they used picnics. They use Disneyland. They use, you know, taking them out to eat. They use getting money, giving them money, taking them trips, you know. They offered them all this for their false testimony and just to make them say, just to force them into saying yes. They used all them issues that I just told you in that, you know, that's what they use. It's, it's there in the trial transcript, all that stuff. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand, explain why why there was closed circuit testimony oh, yeah. and that when oh, yeah, anybody yeah. hears the case then they would think that the kids gave some very coherent statements you know mm -hmm. which they did not you know they didn't go oh mommy um uncle des did this and that to me you know this never happened this is what you would expect i mean me as a person if i look at it from the outside because this is your life you know it's not my life. I'm just looking at it from the outside. Me as a mother, that's what I would expect, you know, that there would have been a very coherent statements from these little girls saying, uh, mom, me help me or save me or they're doing these terrible things to me. And that's just never happened. How, I mean, I'm how, not sure. was, how was Jessica? Do you recall? Oh, how old she was at the time? Yeah, she's She's younger than Lucretia, she was four years old. 
Because I did read Yopisha was five years old. Donovan was seven. Lucretia said she was three. Um, it's possible that in, in the recollection, mm -hmm. you know, there is a disc, you know, I've talked to her before and she said to me, I was five, I was three, I was six. Because you remember, she was taken out at age four and she wasn't coming back to the reservation for a long time. Even now, there is so much trauma that we have not been really able to establish at what point in time she's actually come back to the reservation. Right. In her case, after, she, after the trial, she went through three different or four different foster homes. She can't really recall. And she returned to the reservation when she was about, I think, 10, 11. She told old. me 13. Yeah, it's possible. Mm -hmm. you know so you see so there is there are there are these discrepancies you know so we would have to really sit down and look and get all the files and the paperwork and look at exact detail when was this point when was this point you know that yeah. the majority of those files have have lost the dss the department of social services they're not cooperating and you see native american children they're taken out of their you know, the, the foster home placements, you know, if you get one placement for three months, you send back to the reservation for one week, you get another placement for four years, but you only stay a year, you get sent back there for a month, you get sent back here and there. It's like the recollection is all, it's all shaken, you know. But if, if you know their date is, of birth, you know? hmm? if you know their date of birth, what year they were born, you can figure out how old they were at the time. Yes. Yes, and, and obviously I also I go by the I go by the actual trial transcripts, you know. Yes. I yes. go by what as what they were the age that they you know mm -hmm. were stated to be, you know. Now, the it's reason why that there's sorry. Now the reason why I asked how old Jessica was is I was reading the transcripts and it seemed like they were definitely trying to pull answers from her because she would answer and then it was almost like a question, like, did they put something in you? And she said, yes. And they said, what? Like, ah, ha, ha, we found, you know. And she said, toilet paper, like, with a question mark, like, toilet paper? What do you want me to say? You would think that would be more damning to the case. But they Yeah, you could also say, of course, you know, I mean, <sighs> from her recollection, I mean, it's possible that if she ever needed to go to the toilet, she needed somebody to help her wherever we we yeah you know exactly it could have been totally completely innocent action you know right. you and, can interpret yeah. something into anything you right. know if so, you want to if, mm -hmm. in my opinion you? if you're going to if something traumatizing did happen that would be the very first thing they would say because it would be the very first thing on their minds yeah, you see, what is also amazing is that other people who read the case said to me, Anna, the reason I decided to support this case is because neither the grandmother nor any of the mothers have supported the prosecution. You know, you would think the mothers, I mean, I can tell you if anybody touched my kids, you know. Right. <laughs> None of the mothers supported the prosecution they're actually in opposition they're fighting for their for their brothers you know they're saying our brothers are innocent they're saying that the children 
our youth, you know, what are you doing to our children? You know, our children are not telling the truth. That's why as well, the mothers were, they were denied access to their children. You know, they weren't allowed to see them prior to trial or have any contact with them. They kept the mothers and the grandmothers away from their children, you know, to make sure that there was no, what they said, Native American families, you know, like what came out in the jury as well, you know, this is the general consensus, you know, Native American families just on the whole abuse, obviously their children and the mothers are in with it, you know, so we need to get the, the children out and, and we can't even have the mothers have a part in it. We, you know, meaning the social workers, the FBI, the judge, you know, we know best, you know, we weren't there. We, we, we have no contact with the family. We've never brought them up, but we know these kids were abused. They just made up their mind and that's it, you know. So it was, it was the mothers supporting their brothers, which is the reason that the kids were not returned? Of course, you know, imagine, you know, the the thing is with their questioning and and trying to manipulate, you know, it's like almost like under torture, you're trying to get people to confess to something. And I I would hope that you've never been in a situation like that, but I worked with victims of torture when I was working with Amnesty International and you were so distressed, you just want the pain or the distress stop you come up with lots and lots of stories you know anything that you think it is what they want so this is going to stop you know no matter what you know and this is exactly what happened what the rouse children tried to try to do you know they started accusing their grandmother of raping them you know so they were going too far and that's when the social workers knew they had to stop you know, that was really the point, you know, because really they should have also put Rosemary Rouse, the grandmother, on, on trial. She should have been on trial there too with the men because she was abu- accused of abusing her own grandchildren, you know, rubbing herself at them. I mean, this is extremely traumatic for mm-hmm. Desmond to hear this, okay? Mm-hmm. So this is also I have to say because he's sitting right next to me, so I know this was really emotional. Uh, so she was accused of rubbing themselves at, at them, you know, touching them, penetrating them with their hands, you know. This stuff didn't come up in trial, of course not, because it would have looked completely ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. So they just chose what they needed. That's what they used. And the rest they left out. So, And I think as well, for, for me from Europe, and I know Alan, you're from Europe, probably some listeners are going to be from Europe too. For us, it's very difficult to understand uh, that the United States justice system, the system in itself is not a bad system, you know, leaves so little uh, opportunities for people once they are convicted to actually come back because the system is based on the belief that when a conviction is is, is actually reached, it should stand, you know, and it leaves very, very little room for people who are wrongfully convicted, you know, like in this case actually come back and to prove their innocence and the case comes always back to the judge who originally decided this in this case we have a judge who's even coming back out of retirement to make sure that this case is not going before another judge so that there is no chance 
the man could get a new trial or the evidence could be looked at again. You know, he comes back on his own request out of retirement to make sure the conviction stands. And I want to point out as well that uh, sometimes uh, people say, you know, the conviction must stand for the sake of the victims and, you know, finality and stuff like that. But all of the victims have recanted and they did so straight away. And they're still doing that. And, and their parents have always supported you know, their brothers yes. and cousins. Yes. Yes. So there really is no room for that excuse. No, there the is, yeah, there is nothing. You see, if this goes back to court, there is nothing. There is nothing. And we have conclusively shown that there are absolutely, we have, it's a very, very whole high threshold. The threshold to prove actual innocence is extremely high. And, you know, we have, basically met every threshold of proof of evidence that there is in the United States. And still, we cannot have justice because a judge, uh, two prosecutors that built their career on it, and one went to Washington for criminal justice reform and the other one, <laughs> the other one became a chief judge in South Dakota, have to have this stand, you know? And like Desmond says, I mean, so many cases hang on this. If you read if you read books, you know, there's always reference to Rouse, you know. This is what happened in Rouse at all, 1994. This is what was decided in Rouse at all, 1994. You know, as if it was a just case, as if it was a case in which Native American children were actually protected, you know. It, it's the complete opposite. It is a case in which Native American children were abused, you know. Hey everyone, that's all the time that we have for today. Tune in next time to hear the conclusion of this story. Thanks so much for listening, and please remember to rate, subscribe, and check us out on Facebook. Thanks so much.